Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, but I'm not hosting this episode. Chris Carroll, Harper's Reviews Editor, is taking the wheel. At least one third of every issue of Harper's is focused on books in some way, either excerpts or criticism. And one of the mainstays of our books coverage is the aptly named New Books column. In this episode, Chris moderates a discussion between the outgoing author of the column, Claire Massoud, and the incoming author, Dan Pipenbring. They discuss their critical influences, the nuances of the new books column, and changes in the world of publishing. So the coverage of books in the magazine goes back to as early as the late 19th century. Between 1886 and 1889, there was a section of the magazine called Literary Notes, which was a kind of a freewheeling survey of the literary landscape, which would bring up recent titles that were coming out and then kind of have snarky opinions and also was maybe a bit of a social diary as well. I, I think very much like in the in the old English mode. And then I think we got a bit closer to the form as it exists today between 1940 and 1967, when there was a sort of a very long column called The New Books, which was written by a single columnist. And it was more of an exercise in voice, I think, but was, you know, also strong and opinionated and, and would draw on a number of different books and was then itself followed by a short section called Books in Brief, which was almost like a series of briefly noted, basically discreet reviews. Some of the columnists included Gilbert Hyatt as a classicist, I think, who had a book called Poets in a Landscape, which New York Review reissued. And this was also the period in which Elizabeth Hardwick wrote this famous essay for a special uh, supplement in Harper's that was edited by Bob Silvers, who was then, an, I think, an associate editor at Harper's. Uh, and that piece was called The Decline of Book Reviewing, uh, and it was famously scathing and really took the Times Book Review and the industry to task in general. And, and then not that long after that, Bob went on to co-found the New York Review in 1963. And then the column as it exists today really starts around, I believe, 1999 with Guy Davenport. And I think that the editor at that time was John Jeremiah Sullivan. Davenport's columns were absolutely wonderful, and I think that you know he was... He was this ideal combination of both a fox and a hedgehog. And I mean, he had this incredibly wide ranging purview. He, he could speak intelligently on almost any number of subjects, but could also just drill down so deep into them. And I think even sometimes you read him on books that are themselves not particularly interesting, but he just takes it as an occasion to talk about the subject in a way that is more interesting than the book itself did. It was funny and and erudite, and, and he was followed by John Leonard, who wrote the column for many years, uh, also a wonderful reviewer who, you know, would sometimes do something like 20 books in a single column. You would have a book dispensed with in a sentence, followed by another book dispensed with in a phrase, and like it, it was... It was different, but also wonderful. And, and you know, from there, the, the column has continued on with people as included uh, uh, Josh Cohen and Zadie Smith, uh, Christine Smallwood, Lydia Haas, Julian Lucas, uh, up to you, Claire, and now also you, Dan. Claire, I think as, as the outgoing columnist, I, I wondered maybe if we could start by talking just a little bit about, you know, what it is like to write a column like this full time. What guides you when you choose the books? I did the column for, I guess, two and a half years, right? And I think the 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 variation in how the choices were made, but also in what there was to choose from. There are months where, you know, there are just 10 things that you'd love to write about. And, and then there are other months that are a little more fallow. And that has to do in part with the publishing 
schedule, I guess. But it, but it's also just uh, surely subjective and about the things that each one of us might find interesting. I think it really varied the matter of of of, of choosing. Uh, you know, sometimes, as I say, I, I, there'd be a list. You, 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 Chris, you and I might be looking at sort of six, seven, eight books and uh, or ten books, and then and then winnowing it down, and then and then in other instances you know, struggling a little to find three books that seemed interesting, although the latter was not frequent. But, but then I think, it, you know, it's a matter also of balance. Uh, we, we were trying to balance fiction and nonfiction subjects. And, and dare I say also, uh, because of this, the recurring nature of the column, sometimes the length was a factor. You know, sometimes you'd look and say, that 800, that 800 page biography, yes. I cannot do. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. When you look back on the two, I can't believe it's two and a half years. It went by so quickly. When you look back on that, I mean, do you notice, you think back on it now, you think about the kinds of novels that you tended to review. Can you, do you think of any trends that emerged from that? Anything that it seemed to you particularly encouraging or, or discouraging? One of the things that I, I was doing that was somewhat I mean, not new for me. I, I, I've been reviewing a long time. I, I, I first started writing book reviews 30 years ago uh, in the early 90s in London. And I, I worked on the women's page at the Guardian newspaper, and I sometimes reviewed for them. But I reviewed primarily for the TLS at that time um, and, and a number of other places in the UK um, and then came back here in the mid nineties and book reviews for the New York times and so on. And, but mostly fiction, you know, historically I I'm somebody, I write fiction. And so a lot of what I was reviewing was fiction. And, and for me, I think there was real pleasure obviously in writing, uh, in reviewing fiction, but also great delight for me in, in writing more often about nonfiction books in, in the past, uh, couple of years. I, that, that for me, there were moments of great discovery and delight. I think of, you know, Ruth Skurr's book about Napoleon's gardens, um, that, that <laughs> that was just um i enjoyed i enjoyed so much and um but there were many nonfiction books that that i probably wouldn't have read um there was the, i don't know if you remember chris the uh the one american caliph about the extraordinary hostage situation in the 70s mid 70s which i hadn't even i lived in dc and i hadn't when we came back to the states and i hadn't even known about it so you know there were all sorts of i felt the world was opened up to me uh in all sorts of uh, ways, both historical and contemporary, um, you know, all sorts of different narratives. But I did also l love reviewing the fiction. And and uh, in terms of trends, I to read selectively in contemporary fiction is is restore one's faith and enthusiasm. I mean, just to be delighted and excited about about books from wonderful writers of of all sorts um, from all over the world, from you know Michelle de Kretzer or or, or Jenny Erpenbeck or or um, Brandon Taylor, you know, just all these very different voices. Um, it's, it's, it's exciting. And do you feel, uh, does that have um, an effect on your own writing? Um, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it, it does. I'm sure it does. Uh, although I, although I, I wouldn't be able to say how exactly. Well, maybe put think. a bit differently. It's a, did, did you ever feel that the muscle that you're using to, to write criticism was also the same for fiction? And, you know, that they're mutually exclusive or, or do they feel complementary to you? They're complementary for sure. The, 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 it seems to me that, that, you know, once you're writing fiction at all, whether you're 19 or as I am, you know, well into your 50s, you're reading as a writer 
and and you're you're I, I think often I think when he was young, um, the reason Truffaut became a a uh, filmmaker was because he was writing criticism and going to the movies or first going to the movies, then writing criticism. And every time he was watching a movie, he was thinking, why did that director make that decision? I might've made a different decision. What decision would I have made? Um, and, and, and I think, you know, as a fiction writer, you're having that experience. And so every engagement that you have um, with another work of fiction is, 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 is helpful in asking asking yourself questions about, you know, wow, why do I love this? How is this working? Or why am I struggling with this? Why, why is it a problem Mm -hmm. for me? You know, Um, you know, you mentioned briefly your, your, I think you started writing criticism for the Guardian, you said, was that right? Yeah, I was working at the Guardian on the women's page. And I'm trying to think if I was if my first, I think I was writing some reviews for them. And, and as I said, for the TLS, I think I wrote more reviews at that time for the, for the Times Literary Supplement. There were other, you know, I wrote for the Independent, I wrote for the Times, um, the, the, the the Daily Times in London, I, you know, at that time in the 90s, there were so many, uh, they had so many print pages to fill that it was possible to be it was possible to be a freelance journalist in a you know and keep busy, which was great. Yeah. Yeah. Far yeah. fewer opportunities now. Well, just I was thinking about just to, to um, the the Franzen's essay from you know his Harper's famous Harper's essay mm-hmm. from the nineties when he ta- he talks about having something like fifty or fifty five reviews yes. for a yeah. book. And not uh, gone yes. are those days. Yeah, they are. Um, but uh, I, did you did you find that the form of the column, you know, the juxtaposition of the different books? I mean, was it was it freeing in any way, or did did it feel like more of a challenge? Or? I sort of love the uh, the challenge um, of of trying to link things, find either um, some structural or thematic or some something thread. Sometimes the, the, the moment of the, the, I feel the one column that was the sort of harmonic convergence of that was fairly early on actually. And it, and it was um, Kurt Wolf's grandson. Is it Alexander? What's his first name? Um, who writing them um, his memoir. And uh, then the, the Philippe Sands, yes. the rat line and and then Hermione Lee's biography of yes. Tom Stoppard. And there was some sense in which, although those books seemed superficially quite disparate, um, there were all of these sort of uh, intertwined threads, not least because Kurt Wolf, when he arrived, uh, he was a German publisher. And when he arrived in, in the United States, he started um, Pantheon, the publishing house, with... with um, with Jacques Chiffrin, who who was a French publisher, uh, who had also fled because of the war and come to the United States, who had who started um, the Pleiad series in France, and they started Pantheon together, and and um, and Jacques Chiffrin's son Andre Chiffrin, then later was at Pantheon and then went and started his own press, but but Andre Chiffrin's daughter is married to Philippe Sands. <laughs> So, so it all felt like, oh, it's yes. all connected. But sometimes it was, you know, less, um, it was less, sometimes the thread through a, a column is a little broken. Yes. <laughs> broken. And then you get the, the famous new books transitions. Yeah. 
which I think is, is a thing that every writer of the column has remarked upon at one point or another. That's exactly right. But Claire, as the outgoing columnist, have any advice for Dan as, as the incoming columnist? Or, any, or anything broadly, you would say, even if not advice? I don't know if I have advice, Dan, but I'm so excited to um, read. I, I feel that what it is, is is it's writing about books that are being published. Um, and I think the freedom to, uh, there's so much, we have so much freedom Um you know, and and it's a real opportunity to get the word out about books that might not otherwise, you know, get much attention sometimes. But above all, I feel as though it's actually a chance to just, it's like a walk through your mind, you know, and it's that's such a pleasure. You know, I'm excited to, as a reader, Dan, to, to go on a walk through your mind with you over the coming months and years. And, um, and, and I, I would just say, um, write about what you want to write about. That would be my one tip. And, and, and you're, you're, you're so, um, we are so blessed in having the chance to work with Chris and uh, everybody on the team at Harper's, an amazing group of people. So Thank you. Well, well so that, that seems like a, a, a good time maybe to turn to you, Dan. And, and, you know, it's a bit different because you're just, you're just starting out now. You've uh, just uh, filed your second column, which is, which is wonderful, just as the first was. And, and uh, you know, that first column should be coming out um, at about the time that this podcast is released. Um, but, but I thought, you know, again, uh, let's just talk for a minute about the question of what, you know, when you're, when you're writing the column and you, you have the books and you have it, you have the column as a macro piece of writing uh, and the whole, and then you kind of have on a more granular level, the questions of like what, there's a service element to it, right? So you, you, there's a certain amount that you have to say about just what transpires in a book and whether the book is doing it well or poorly. And when you think about what you're going to say about these books, what, you know, when to go negative, when not to, how do you balance description with analysis? What's, uh, you know, what are some of your thoughts about that? It's a great question. I mean, it's, it's sort of the whole ball game, but it's, it's the toughest thing to figure out. And when I agreed to take this job, I, of course, promptly went in the Harper's archives and read all of my predecessors and was immediately terrified, just absolutely (laughs) terrified. Uh, it's not just big shoes to fill. It's many pairs of shoes that are all big in mm-hmm. a different way. And I think all of the writers have strengths in some of the areas that you mentioned. And, and they all seem to me to fall broadly into one of two camps. You have these kind of lapidary writers. And then uh, th- this will seem much worse, but I mean it uh, as an equal position, sort of more puddle-like writers Mm-hmm. It's, it's maybe more, it, it's it's like centripetal force versus centrifugal force, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I found myself just wanting very much to be a puddle and not a gem. Yeah. The, the sense of seepage of, of a slow spread of information, yes. that's, that's where I was kind of finding myself. And I could summarize all day. My God, can I yes. summarize? I love yeah. to summarize. To me, the difficulty is knowing when and how, as you were saying, to to offer one's opinion. There was, I forget who wrote it, but a few years ago, there was a writer kind of taking the NYRB and LRB to task for their monumentally long reviews that would sometimes <laughs> have, you know, just a sentence or two of qualitative prose, you know, like uh, just one or two sentences rendering a verdict that was sometimes hardly even positive or negative. I understand a a reader's frustration with that model, but 
it, it really, it's so attractive to me. It's uh, uh, the book report model, I guess you could say. Can you say more about why? I don't know. It's I, I think it's that if you're enjoying what you're reading, and maybe this applies more to nonfiction than to fiction, but if you're enjoying what you're reading, the mere act of summary can seem like service enough in, in terms of rendering a verdict about whether or not it's good. That is, if you care enough to say what happened, then the book has already won you over. And you wouldn't be wasting your time summarizing it in in such artful detail if you were not in some way mm-hmm. taken with what it, what it had to show you. So yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's sort of part of it. And, and uh, it, it can feel, I, I think... There's also just a bit of, of shyness behind this. I mean, anyone who's written a book, I think, becomes that much more wary of delivering his opinion about someone else's book. Because you know that even if the book is just horrendous, that writer probably went through some form of he- mm-hmm. hell to deliver it into the world. Yes. So there's a, a certain humility and, and a certain humbleness that comes with the act. And I, I think all of that can lead me anyway to to retract into my shell if called upon to say, you know, this sucks. Though, of course, <laughs> yeah. I would love to say it in private. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, the, you know, the, there's also just this question. I, the rule of thumb, as, as I'm, you know, you both know, but maybe is worth mentioning anyway, is just that generally um, you save the space since there, sir, is, there is so little space today for criticism. You save what space you have for this stuff that you you know, think is good and that you you know want to draw people's attention to and that if the thing is not so good maybe you just don't review it and and the exception to that i think you know i think in the very first issue of the new york review books maybe there's like a little blurb there's like an editor's statement mm-hmm. and th- there's a line in there that is like to that is to the effect that the negative review is important if it's to you know if it's if the problems with the book are meaningful if it's a meaningfully bad book if it is if it exemplifies a larger trend that seems like a problem in some way and that is extremely widespread and that poses some kind of a threat um, or just is is depressing um, yeah, and also yeah. you know if there's an, an inflated reputation maybe and that has gotten to a point where you want to counter it and, um, and that you know that makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, there's also, as Claire was saying, in, in the 90s, a book could reliably net dozens of reviews. And I think there was more room in that climate for the yes. takedown or the dissenting opinion. Yeah. Uh, as as the publishing world contracts and, and reading comes to seem like a kind of <laughs> curious hobby, uh, I, yes. I don't think I don't think there's the demand or even the necessity for that kind of I polemic that. anymore. I agree with that. You know, I think you also probably, as you both know, as a writer, it's actually a, a takedown is an easier thing to do. You know, it's yes, more, it's, it's, yes. it's, a, it's a, it's a performance piece. And I think that if you have a certain amount of panache and style, you can execute something uh, that is a much superficially more impressive piece of writing um, than than you might be able to do if you were trying to make the positive case for something. To, to do something generative is actually quite difficult, or can be, I think. It's interesting. I think there was, living in London, uh, you know, in the 90s, there, was, there were a lot of um, witty takedowns. And, uh, and even here in the, in the first decade of the 21st century, I think there were a fair number. There were um, reviewers who were sort of known for that. I, I, um, I, rem- I remember 
That's right. that's exactly mm-hmm. who I was thinking of. Dale Peck, Dale Peck, Dale Peck not, was yeah. known for that. Um, and yes. and yeah. I do think yes, the the shrinkage of the of the available space has has changed the the discourse a bit. And um, Chris, you mentioned uh, the, in the New York Review's sort of mission statement the idea of you know a meaning things that are meaningfully bad we should comment upon, and that's certainly still true. But I feel there's a, lot, a whole lot that's meaninglessly bad that we can, we can just let go of. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. So Dan, we were talking about, so we, we sort of ran through the questions of when do you go negative, when not to, you already balance description with analysis. Um, you know, I, I think that what we were talking about, what to do, what not to do reminds me of, you know, that, the, I don't know how familiar this is to people, but Updike's like lists of what, you know, what should a book review accomplish? I don't know, maybe there's like five or six points. And a lot of it then uh, dovetails with what you were saying. And it has to do with uh, trying to making an effort to understand what the book is trying to do, you know, trying to understand the author's intent, um, giving the reader an accurate sense of it. And to the degree to which the author seems to be achieving what they're trying to do or not. Um, And that's, you know, Virgil Thompson said a similar thing. He was a music critic, but he said, in some ways, the, the judgment is the least important part of the piece. That, in other words, if you're doing your job as a critic, there's this reportorial element almost of just saying what happens and what is it. And there's description and that, like, doing that well can accomplish, as you said, Dan, a lot of those questions uh, or answer a lot of those. Yeah, I, I worked briefly for... Bon Appetit, the food magazine, as a staff writer for the website. And the job entailed essentially introducing slideshows of recipes. You know, here's 20, 20 boneless, skinless chicken breast recipes for your, <laughs> for your weekday dinners. And yeah. whenever I get stuck in book reviewing, I just I try to remember that I'm essentially introducing the recipes. It's the same job. And I, I'm getting a little too high minded about it. If it grows too elusive, so all you really need to do is, is show the the reader, uh, you know, the boneless, skinless <laughs> chicken breasts, and, and you're and you're give well them, on your way. Give them what they want. Yes, uh, which, yes. So, could you talk a bit about how you how you came to criticism and and you know the path that brought you here? Yes, yeah, it's um, a somewhat circuitous one. Um, I worked for a few years at the Paris Review as the web editor running the Paris Review Daily, which compared to the quarterly print magazine has a kind of unusual remit because at that at the time I was there anyway, the bulk of the nonfiction was going on the daily, as we called it, and not into the quarterly. However, the Paris Review from its inaugural issue had, of course, uh, a famous beef with criticism. You know, they didn't want, I think they asked for non-drum beaters and a bunch of other non-stuff well, I really, in my heart of hearts, wanted to be a drum beater. So I was sneaking increasingly prose that I would say was generally critical onto the website. And I think as I did that, I kind of discovered my voice and became interested in, in writing more book reviews and then started to do that for uh, The New Yorker and The Times Book Review and, and places like that. But I think it was the demands of that job, which uh, was kind of a marathon in its own right, um, that really kind of set me up best for this position, because then I was really writing every day. I would get up every morning and have to crank out some prose about whatever 
was happening that day, whichever poet had died, you know, et cetera. So <laughs> I learned to stay hydrated with, uh, you yeah. know, several glasses of wine a night. Yeah. I mean, for, for both of you, I mean, Claire, maybe if you wouldn't mind first, and then you, Dan, I wonder broadly, who, who are your, your favorite critics or, or even just one? Who you, who you find yourself draw, returning to again and again. I live with a critic. Um, so I, 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 <laughs> strictly speaking, just just outside the, yeah. outside the realm of criticism and in, you know, in other aspects of life, I, I, I'd have to claim him as my favorite critic, I think, just, just you know, strictly speaking. Yeah. But, but there are so many, and I, I'm having a moment, but there are so many people I love to read. I, I, I think essentially of the entire New York Review of Books, that I, you know, that the 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 roster yeah. um, from, you know, starting out when I was young, I remember being a, a teenager and my parents subscribed and reading a Harold Bloom. I was a student at Yale and I was reading a Harold Bloom piece in the New York Review of Books. I must have been 17 or 18 years old. And, and it was so lucid and accessible, which was, of course, not my understanding of an academic um, academics review, but, but, but from then on, right. I think, you know, just the, the, the amazing range of, uh, of voices and, and indeed the, the, the people that you've had doing the column at Harper's, I mean, I, I love Zadie's criticism. Joshua Cohen is, is a, a, a brilliant critic. Christian Lawrenson, I really like his work. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of Christine Small, but I like mm -hmm. her work. You know, I, um, I think there, there, I could go on and on, but, but there, there are a lot of really terrific critics out there at the moment. Mm -hmm. And Dan, you mentioned trawling through the archives, you know, as, as you're preparing for this, was there a particular columnist, a new books columnist who you found really, you were like, this is my person or? I think it, the, the one that I most gravitate to, I think because I started reading Harper's when I was in college, when he was writing it was John Leonard. To me, he mm -hmm. really perfected the form and he made it seem so effortless. And uh, to, to return to my earlier distinction, he he seems to me the emblem of the puddle style new books critic, yeah. where one gets the sense of all these tendrils just emerging and a, and a kind of slowly increasing flood of erudition um, that never feels overwhelming. You know, you're happy to be in that flood yeah. basement with them. So. <laughs> so, so for people maybe who haven't read a Leonard column, could you just t talk a bit more about what that looks like on the page? You know. Yeah, it's I I mean it's a bit tough to describe but he he has uh he has such a kind of prolix style that doesn't feel prolix. I mean, he I I can understand someone finding him too verbose, but to me he just has this kind of rangy um astute style where his sentences are kind of log jammed with descriptors and unexpected comparisons and uh, kind of like the height of, of the liberal arts education kind of showing itself off. Uh, it is, it's a bit showy. I mean, he knew so much in so many different forms. He could also write about, you know, the, the latest TV drama, you know, so he was as likely to reference something like VR as he was uh, Shakespeare sonnets or, you know, some, strange renaissance era writer that you'd never heard of so i i just his his reach never exceeded his grasp because he seemed to to know everything so i yeah, really enjoyed uh his high his kind of highbrow lowbrow blend i thought was truly exceptional yeah and he had that light touch right i mean that's the thing is that you you need the erudition but you also need to uh <laughs> 
<laughs> not be an ass. Yes. Yeah. And therein, therein lies the problem. Yeah. It, it's not easy. And I mean, you, you, you mentioned the famous kind of transition sentences, which are, of course, the, the bane of every new book's columnist's existence. Yes, of course. And he made those seem just like, like a summer breeze, you know? <laughs> yeah, they don't call attention to themselves. They don't, uh, they don't. And if they do, it's only because they're so good and so, so yes. kind of unexpected. It's yeah. like a sharp right-hand yeah, turn that you absolutely. didn't see coming. Yes. Well, I'd love to ask you, Chris, because your experience both yeah, yeah. editing um, the pages, but also, of course, you ha- you, you know the occasional column. You you're, you have a wonderful column in in um, in the July issue just out. Yes, um, and which I, I still haven't read. I need to read it. You might have to do another. <laughs> but another I just I want to ask you, having edited so many so many columns, you know, for you writing, whether it's a pleasure uh, or whether you think, oh, it's just a duty. I've got to do it. I mean. It seemed as though you chose books that pleased you. Yes. Yeah. That, I mean, that was for me, that was the guiding. So, so to, first of all, to answer your question, it, it's, it was both a, a duty and a pleasure. I think on the most basic level, you know, yes, we just needed a column for that particular month. And I said, probably I had just come back from paternity leave and um, I didn't think it would make sense to um, ambush a new columnist with a shorter than usual deadline. So I just said, let me do it myself. Um, but but it was fun. I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. And I did. I mean, I like pleasure basically was the guiding light for me. Um, and I think that I had absolutely had the experience that you, Claire, described where this sort of three very disparate books, this sort of serendipity emerges as you're writing and thinking about them and this kind of. I, it's to the extent that there was a theme between, you know, one of the books was um, a kind of a, a book about Schoenberg by a great um, mm-hmm. music historian named Harvey Sachs. And it was a bit of an odd book because it, it was it wasn't totally a biography and it wasn't really a kind of argued um, thesis either. It was it was almost like a, a contextualization I mean, I, I don't know if he would put it this way, but to me, it was like for anyone who has ever scratched their head and wondered what the hell is going on here, here is a book that is going to maybe written by someone who's fairly impartial and will lead you into what mm-hmm. what can be the joys of this music. Um, and, and how do you begin to listen to it in a way um, that sort of lets you understand what he was trying to do and, and what was so great about that? Um, there's a wonderful novel by um, an independent filmmaker and a screenwriter named Henry Bean, which is being, uh, was, I think, published in 1980, 1981, something like that. And it's being reissued by uh, McNally Editions, mm-hmm. the new publishing arm of McNally Jackson, which mm-hmm. has, has done a, like a wonderful series of reissues so far. Uh, and then, you know, in the tradition of John Leonard, I just threw in uh, a thriller at the end because it, it was a summer column. And I just thought, like, you know, we might as well have some summer reading in here. So um, the, like, 20th book or something like that in the series that started with Gorky Park uh, in the 80s is, is just about to come out. And I found that even though the books have, you know, superficially absolutely nothing in common, just the the basic enthusiasm for all of them allows the the writing to kind of knit together in a way that is just very surprising. And it's hard to articulate precisely how what's happening is happening, but I loved it. it was, I thought it was, it was I thought it was read. a blast. Um, I, I, I just, I have, I have it right here and I, um, I don't want to, um, it, for it to be a spoiler, Dan, for, for you, but, but at the end, <laughs> no, the last no, couple please. of sentences, which are about this, um, about this thriller, uh, independent square, 
the last couple lines, the whole thing is shot through with wonderful detail of quotidian Russian life, quote, the hopelessness, the comedy and the tragedy of it. And, and then Chris writes the last line, summer in a bottle. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> really lovely, lovely. lovely. Yeah. yeah that is the the ultimate treat of the column though as you were saying chris when when the connections start to emerge from places that you didn't think they were hiding yes and that's the that's the tough thing because i think if you conceive of it too explicitly from the outset as yep. an essay you can give yourself fits and i think that it doesn't really work. I mean, it can, mm-hmm. it can, and, and some for some people it has, but on, on balance, you're setting yourself a very, very difficult task from month to month. And I think that as you you read and as you write, the kind of questions happen to emerge, or, or even if it's not a question, even if it's not an essayistic question, maybe there's a kind of an animating theme that ends up shooting through the whole thing and that you as a writer can impose on it. And it's, you know, it's when that, it doesn't happen every time, but I think when that happens, it's it's a delight. And and so is the whole thing. And and, and so has oh. um, editing you both been. Oh, so Claire, we'll, we'll miss oh, you very much. I, and thank you so, so much lucky. for writing it. I feel it. so lucky to have um, worked and, with you and, and to have had the chance. It was just wonderful. And I can't wait to read Dan's columns. So. Thank you, Claire. I so enjoyed reading yours. And I have to imagine that it's going to be very it's fun gonna be, not it's to gonna write be them su- as well. It's going to be super so. fun to read. It's going to be. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can, you can get on with life. Uh, yes. Exactly. <laughs> You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.